I'm very happy to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Olivier Zunz. Olivier Zunz is the Commonwealth Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Born and educated in Paris, he is considered a leading scholar on Alexa de Tocqueville and has edited collections of his letters and work. He is the author of The Changing Face of Inequality, Making American Corporate, and Why the American Century, in addition to his new book, Philanthropy in America. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Olivier Zunz. Thank you so much for inviting me this evening to talk to you about my recent book. I'm very much honored by the invitation. Um, perhaps I should begin by telling you a story that I'm told may have happened in the antiquity when a man who was condemned to the lions uh, didn't die because the lions would not eat him. And uh, when after this happened several times, he was finally freed on the condition to tell everybody what he was telling the lions. And he was telling the lions, well, it's very simple. You can eat me now if you want to, but after that, you'll have to give an after-dinner speech. <laughs> well, the first... Uh, question I want to raise tonight, uh, the most relevant to the topic of this evening, that is, do we have too much of philanthropy, is really kind of the obvious question, that is, how distinctive has American philanthropy been? What can we see in it that sets it apart from other traditions of giving, since every, every civilization has a tradition of giving? And a common answer to this question calls for making a distinction between charity, mostly giving alms to the poor, and the new philanthropy devoted to the search for the root causes of social ills. But also this uh, distinction has merit. I don't think it is what has set American philanthropy apart from other traditions of giving and put it in a class of its own. I think what has made American philanthropy historically distinctive is that it has been very broadly defined. So broadly, in fact, that it has penetrated all aspects of society instead of being limited to some only. A little over a century ago, at a time when the new class of American entrepreneurs became exceptionally wealthy, they, and in some instances their widows, opted to give much of their newly acquired money away. They didn't do it alone. They did it in partnership with reformers of all kinds. And very much influenced by the blueprints the reformers drew. But those philanthropists did not confine themselves to narrowly defined causes, as both tradition and the law of charity actually required but they advanced instead an open-ended agenda of works in which participants could redefine goals as circumstances changed. They promoted nothing less than something they called the good of mankind, as the phrase became used increasingly in foundation charters and in bequests. In 1907, 
Mrs. Sage on joining their new foundation, quote, to take up the larger and more difficult problems of the day. In an early draft for the, early draft for the charter of the Rockefeller Foundation in 1910, uh, Reverend Frederick Gates stated as its goal the promotion of any and all of the elements of human progress, the larger problems of the day, human progress. The final 1913 resolution was to promote the well-being of mankind throughout the world. Almost all of the Carnegie institutions were designed for the improvement of mankind. Simon Guggenheim added the appreciation of beauty for the 1925 foundation dedicated to the memory of his son, John Simon. Academic entrepreneurs who built the American Research University, uh, social science pioneers who championed a more equitable industrial society, public health promoters, advocates of uh, more progressive race relations, pushed the philanthropists to think big. Um, and the philanthropists were quite conscious of the new means that generated and of their potential for the common good. Thus, rich on the one hand and reformers on the others built a lasting alliance despite the reformers' conscience that the rich, whose money they were seeking, were often responsible for the social problems they wanted to resolve. Now, ambitious, the new philanthropists in defining their purpose so broadly stood in opposition to centuries of charitable practice of carefully defining purpose and beneficiary. This is why I said this is what made this, this moment uh, distinctive in this country. Much charitable giving was done through bequest still is the case. Heirs who were looking forward to becoming rich and who were not if the money went elsewhere and were quite upset when this didn't happen, you can understand them, often challenged the gift. And the less specific the gift, the easier the challenge. For a bequest normally to withstand a challenge from heirs, the trust instrument had to state specifically how the money was to be used. The early 17th century British uh, uh, statute of charitable uses continued to carry much weight in American courts because it listed acceptable categories of gift. narrowly defined, relief of the indigent, medical care, learning, religion, other objects of public utility, and uh, even though the first thing American state did uh, after the revolution was to abolish British laws, these precedents remain important. Uh, the bequest had to identify trustees clearly, to provide for a class of beneficiaries clearly. Should the donor's initial intent become lost with the passage of time, sometimes because the designated categories of recipients disappeared, then the old legal doctrines of Cypress from the French aussi près que, meaning as close as possible to the donor's wishes, 
provide a guidance for the courts to keep the trust active. Gifts could be so narrow that their purpose became quickly obsolete. The great Chicago philanthropist uh, Julius Rosenwald, founders of Sears Roebuck, actually one of the heroes of my book, because he devoted his fortune to building thousands of elementary schools, over 4,000 of them, for African Americans in the South during the early 20th century, listed an impressive assortment of narrowly defined trust in a piece he published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1929. There's a long list, and my favorite from his list of narrowly defined trust is a gift for Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania that was designed to provide each young woman in the college with a baked potato at every meal. In this instance, what rendered the trust obsolete, obviously, was the coming of dieting. <laughs> uh, so, how did we go in one generation from a baked potato at every meal to the good of mankind? This is quite a distance to cover. Uh, of the many steps this took, I will mention the crucial test case. Samuel Tilden, in his 1884 will, he remarked his own fortune, earned as a corporate attorney, to create a free public library in the midst of New York City, eventually the New York Public Library. Tilden was a popular figure. The New York governor, had won the popular vote in the presidential election of 1876, but he lost the White House when an electoral commission gave his Republican opponent the one contested electoral, flow, electoral vote in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> if this sounds like Al Gore, yes, it does. <laughs> Tilden wanted to build a library for cosmopolitan New York, as Ben Franklin had done long before for Philadelphia. Libraries which might produce a more educated citizenry were a favorite project of railroad magnates and industrialists in late 19th, late 19th century America, most famously, of course, Carnegie. Now, Tilden's nephews and nieces, he had no children, challenged the will. The governor had provided quite generously for them, so the challenge was unexpected. But the nephews and nieces were very much in debt and had been looking forward for some time to becoming rich. So they used every legal avenue open to them. As New York law required that donations be made to bodies already incorporated with a charter, the nephews and nieces had been properly advised that the Tilden bequest was illegal because the new library had yet to be incorporated. 
Moreover, some of the bequest language was surprisingly vague. If for some reason the designated trustees failed to create the library, the will said, then the estate would go to another worthy public cause of their choosing, provided it was lofty enough to be for the benefit of mankind. That too violated the law, based on precedence of specificity. So the challengers had the upper hand, and the Supreme Court of New York had no choice, reluctantly, but to side with them. The AS won in 1888. Here was a large, open-ended gift that could not survive a court challenge, at least not immediately. Tilden's heirs faced the active oppositions of reformers, and many who cared about the future of New York and wanted this library. They had not counted on the determination of one man by the name of Andrew Green, long forgotten, Tilden's law partner. Green would later become famous for orchestrating the consolidation of the five boroughs into Greater New York in 1898, when London, because of this, New York, because of this consolidation, became the second largest city in the world after London. But at the moment, all he wanted for New York was to save the Tilden Trust to form the New York Public Library. And although he could not, under state law, overcome the nieces and nephews' greed, he could seek delays in paying them. And he could negotiate with other New York institutions to merge resources, and he could lobby the legislature to change the law, all of which he did. Carnegie chided children for not having built his library during his lifetime. That would have solved all of the problems. Carnegie argued that all Tilden and other philanthropists had to do to bypass legal limitations on bequest was to follow his example, of course, and give their money while, while alive. Carnegie was partly right, but the bigger obstacle, though, was to large-scale philanthropy and open-ended philanthropy was an obsolete legal framework. Well, after a long battle, the legislature changed the law. And to my mind, modern American philanthropy began then. The Tilden, the Tilden case was resolved in 1893 in favor of open-endedness by a special act of the New York legislature known as the Tilden Act. The new law made it perfectly acceptable to leave a bequest undefined and put the trustees in charge of redefining the goals for each generation. New York legislators, in effect, transferred the old doctrine of Cypress from the judge to the trustees. The new legal framework would make it possible for successive generations of trustees to alter the donor's plan to respond to society's needs. It removed a long-standing objection to philanthropy and to endowments in general, that is, the binding of one generation by another. The long-standing objection that Jefferson had exposed in the early years of the nation. The Tilden trustees, after reaching a settlement with one of Tilden heirs and working out a partnership 
with New York's Astor and Linux libraries opened the public library in 1895. New York's decision was part of a broader shift in American law. Maryland passed a similar law in 1888. Michigan in 1907, a statute that basically copied the 1893 Tilden Act. Virginia passed its version in 1914. Soon enough states had similar statutes to make open-ended philanthropy for the good of mankind the law of the land. Officials of the Rockefeller Foundation must have felt a sense of their American distinctiveness in the 1920s when the British Treasury denied the Rockefeller Foundation a tax exemption for returns on British investments. What were the grounds? Well, the grounds were that the good of mankind was not a charitable purpose in England. <laughs> American, American philanthropy had by then found its identity. Now, a second point I want to make about uh, modern American philanthropy is that it is not, has not been for a long time now an activity reserved only to the rich. If philanthropy were reserved to the rich, it wouldn't be very democratic. America is the country of mass production, of mass distribution, of mass consumption, of mass leisure, and it has become also the country of mass philanthropy. Um, Americans have perfected the technique of mass fundraising, of fundraising on an unprecedented scale for all variety of causes, including the root causes of social ailments. There had been a precedent during the Civil War, but the movement of mass fundraising began really about a century ago a little over that. I think it began in 1907. Jacob Rees, Danish-born immigrant, a police reporter, a pioneer in photography of tenement life, an active campaigner to clean up the slums, one of those Sunday school teachers, reformers, and a good friend of Teddy Roosevelt, had seen Six brothers died of tuberculosis when he received a Christmas letter from Denmark bearing a peculiar seal in addition to the traditional postage stamp. A Danish postal official had the idea of selling the seals to raise money to build a local hospital with, for children with tuberculosis. In 1907, three years after receiving the remarkable letter, the hospital was fully constructed near Copenhagen. Rees then told the story of this highly successful penny subscription in Outlook. He urged the duplication of this type of fundraising in the US. Rees pointed the fact that no millionaire had come forth to endow the fight, the fight against tuberculosis. He wanted to say that no millionaire was wanted. 
and that the job would be far better done by the people themselves. This was the beginning of a century of mass fundraising, a genuine democratization of giving that allows every one of us to become a philanthropist. Having said that, American philanthropy became so broadly defined and that big money philanthropy and mass philanthropy have about the same birth date. I want to talk about rules of engagement with such lofty goals as the good of mankind. How do you go about it? Alexis de Tocqueville once remarked that only God has no need for general ideas. Just because only he, capital H, can take care of each one of us individually. But philanthropists need some principles of action, some rules of engagement, if they want to be influential in education or science or public health or public administrations or welfare or policy making and a host of ventures. Now, the historical debate, as it turned out, has been much more heated on what philanthropists could not do rather than on what philanthropists could do. And one thing philanthropists couldn't do, and still cannot really do legally with, with tax-exempt money, at least not easily, is to challenge the law. Even though challenging the law is otherwise legal and it's reasonable and it's even necessary in a world full of bad laws. It's actually hard to conceive of working for the good of mankind without challenging the law. And in American history, Challenging the law has been especially necessary in matters of civil rights. Philanthropists have necessarily joined in the partisan battles over racial discrimination, women's political rights, women's personal rights, and a few other deeply felt issues. It's really hard to imagine an activist philanthropy not pushing the limits of the law, even at the risk of breaking it. The issue is of vital significance for an effective philanthropy consistent with democratic, consistent with democ democratic controls of wealth, and yet able to engage difficult political battles. But somehow, challenging the law is not supposed to be done with philanthropic money. And the most commonly heard rationale for keeping philanthropy at bay, of course, is that the state cannot subsidize through tax exemption a political activity that not only impinges upon its own prerogatives, but also gives an unfair advantage to some. So the restriction on propaganda, which philanthropy is not supposed to engage in, 
propaganda being the word used most often in court cases, has long been a part of the law of charity. It actually preceded the tax policy, the tax policy that began to matter only, really only after the 1913-16th Amendment to the Constitution establishing the income tax, the federal income tax. Now, citizens should not attempt to alter the law through the gift of their private wealth. A gift must be, I quote, apply consistently within existing laws, wrote Massachusetts Chief Justice Horace Gray in the civil rights case of the Reconstruction years, Jackson v. Phillips. Citing previous authorities, dating back to uh, British common law, Judge Gray insisted, I quote again, the bounty, must be, the bounty must be according to the law, not against the law, and not given to do some act against the law. <coughs> now, what was this case about? The controversy arose when heirs to, Boston, to a Boston merchant, Francis Jackson, challenged his will, his bequest, dated 1861, a bequest in 1861 to a prominent group of abolitionists and feminists in the days when the two movements were still closely allied. In 1867, one year before the challenge was heard in court, Susan B. Anthony, one of the bequest beneficiaries, founded with Frederick Douglass the American Equal Rights Associations aimed at getting the vote for both women and African Americans. In the bequest, the clause for African Americans and women were differently worded. And that is very significant. The different wording for each group. This proved to be critical. For African Americans, the money was to be used for the preparation and circulation of books, newspapers, the delivery of speeches, lectures, and such other means as in their judgments will create a public sentiment, a public sentiment that will put an end to Negro slavery in this country. That was written in 1861. And there, were, there was also some fun for the benefit of fugitive slaves. But the wording was only about the delivery of speeches and the change in the public sentiment was an issue. Of course, the heirs claimed that the trust had failed on this first clause for a simple reason, is that the 13th Amendment had abolished slavery and therefore had made a gift to slaves and fugitives obsolete. And they were absolutely right. The court, however, held that the doctrine of Cypress again staying as close as possible to the donor's wishes was applicable because neither the immediate purpose of the giver nor the ultimate project had been fully accomplished by the abolition of slavery. So the judge saw certainly in his authority 
uh, that he could extend the bequest to new circumstances and he would still be honoring the wishes of the donor. Now for the women, the story was different. The gift was intended not simply to shape public opinion, but to intervene directly in the political process. It was meant, and I quote, to help secure passage of laws, granting women, whether married or unmarried, the right to vote, for which, of course, women had to wait until the 19th Amendment. To hold, to hold office, to manage and devise property, to gain all other civil rights enjoyed by men, as well as, of course, the preparation of circulation of books, the delivery of lectures, and other means. So the courts immediately denied the validity of the gifts for women's rights because it was aimed directly and exclusively to change the laws. The cause may be right, the judge admitted, but in a free republic, it is the right of every citizen to, write, to strive by vote, speech, or writing to cause the laws or even the constitutions under which he lives to be reformed or altered by the legislature of the people, not by a philanthropic gift. Therefore, they are not entitled, those gifts, to peculiar favor or protection and perpetuation for the ministers of those laws which they are designed to modify or subvert. In deciding the case, Judge Gray laid out not a firewall between philanthropy and politics as later regulators would read the decision all the way throughout the 20th century, but a more subtle rule to separate permissible, permissible educational action from non-permissible political lobbying. Now, the courts were quite flexible as you read too many cases for me to relate today. But tax courts, tax courts became much tougher. In 1919, during the first Treasury regulations after the income tax, the, principles of, the principle of no political advocacy for charity appeared for the first time in those regulations, again on the rationale that the state cannot give a tax exemption to politically controversial activity. And a series of administrative rulings and judicial opinions culminated with the Revenue Act Congress passed in 1934, the first such act to make a formal distinction between political advocacy and giving in determining eligibility for tax exemption. Lyndon Johnson strengthened the 1934 act in 1954 when he ruled the Senate and so did Congress in the tax overhaul of 1969, in the midst of the civil rights movement, and in direct response to philanthropic support of the civil rights movement. Philanthropists take a significant risk of losing their tax exemption if they take on politically controversial issues. I will take only one example from the battle surrounding the legislations of birth control. Federal obscenity laws had treated birth control information as pornographic 
Ever since young dry goods clerk Anthony Comstock launched a social purity crusade from New York City's YMCA in the 1870s. As a result of treating um, birth control information as pornographic, using the mail to distribute information on contraception was a serious offense, and medical textbooks ignored the matter or they would lose their postal permits. Margaret Sanger, a nurse in New York City's Lower East Side in the early in the century, was among the many social workers who witnessed time and again the devastating effects of lack of birth control among poor women. The most visible outcome, of course, were the many unsafe or fatal cases of abortion. But federal statutes stood in the way of Sanger's efforts to distribute birth control information. She won a case in 1918 when a New York judge construed the state's obscenity laws, at least as allowing physicians to prescribe contraceptions for the cure of diseases. But the tax exemption came to a head a good 10 years later in the late 1920s when Sanger's second husband, Noah Lee, a wealthy and conservative businessman, Sanger had agreed to wed on the condition they maintained separate quarters, but he financed their birth control clinics when Noah Lee had to face the IRS. The older man who never gave up pursuing a wife who lived best without him, went through great efforts to keep, the, to keep the clinics running, gave large amounts of money. And although the Birth Control League was chartered as charitable in the state of New York, the IRS rejected Slee's return on the ground that he supported an organization devoted to political lobbying on behalf of a controversial issue. In his decision, the judge stuck to the Treasury Department rules. And the case was closely watched by philanthropists of all stripes, as other foundations and donors feared running the same risk if they contributed to charitable organizations engaged in political campaigns of changing the law. The court proceedings, however, did not deter Sanger herself, who, without waiting for the outcome, further broadened her campaign. And in order to make up for the money she was losing for wealthy donors, turned instead to mass philanthropy and raised an enormous amount of money from all sorts of women all around the country. Um, if uh, People believe that she didn't have the network to do so to, to, to build a national campaign. She actually did quite successfully. And, and many women sent $25, $50 to her cause. In 1936, she won, and the obscenity laws were finally rendered moot by the courts, and birth control made legal distributing information on it. But when Margaret Sanger won her long battle, Noah Slee, her husband, lost his. Slee's loss with the IRS 
did not appear to be very critical at the time. But in fact, it was. All the attention was on the movement, but behind the scenes, the principles of separation of advocacy from giving remain. It is remarkable how much effort lawmakers, regulators, philanthropists alike have invested throughout the 20th century in the nearly impossible task of keeping philanthropy away from politics. Philanthropy without politics draws boundaries between a theoretical sphere of thinking and the political one of acting. It requires a distinction between policy making, a technical field eligible for the tax exemption, and something akin to influence peddling, a political activity that cannot be subsidized. That advocacy should be banned from giving became actually as difficult to pin down a proposition as separate but equal, another dramatic legal doctrine stemming from the same period. But actually, in the four minutes left to me, <laughs> the strictures that separated philanthropy from politics have never held up very well. So I'd like to finish this by contrasting giving from three generations of Mellon family members. Maybe you'll allow me one more minute. <laughs> Andrew Mellon, Paul Mellon, and Audrey Mellon from the 1930s to the 1960s. Now, philanthropic giving is considered safe if it doesn't engage politically divisive issues, and also if it is not a form of tax evasion. Andrew Mellon seemingly started out with unsafe philanthropy of the tax evasion type. Although the Board of Tax Appeals posthumously exonerated him. Pittsburgh banker with a genius for investment, Harding's College and Hoover's Treasury Secretary, they say pre three presidents served under him, divorced from a woman who had managed to have her husband pay for her, pay for her lover's debt, <laughs> distant father, it seems as though Mellon talked only to the many paintings he bought, including 20 in one year from Stalin, who sold off quite a few of the Hermitage treasures. The first capitalist and the first communist had a way of understanding one another <laughs> by way of a clever art dealer in London. By the, from 1930 to 1933, Mellon took a tax deduction for donating his collection, but he kept the paintings in, in, his, private, in his private possession. So FDR and Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary, went after him big. And this produced the National Gallery of Art, which Mellon began planning only after the, the uh, 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 suit was underway. Mellon had two children, Paul and Elsa. Paul was the most famous one, the most open philanthropist. And in the book of memoirs, Reflections in a Silver Spoon, he goes at length on how tough it was to be raised by a father who showed no affection. I read the book closely, and after a while, I just dropped it and said, OK, Paul, 
Get over it. <laughs> he made you the richest man in America. Um, Paul uh, was a great philanthropist and friend of the arts. He lived in a world of his own. Uh, when he decided to serve his country during the war, he couldn't go to the uh, next recruitment office. He took his private jet to have a meeting with General Patton and decided what to do. <laughs> and when he needed to see a shrink, God knows there are many of them in New York City. No, he bought a house in Zurich so that Carl Jung could do the analysis. <laughs> What, uh, what uh, uh, Mellon doesn't talk about in his book, though, is more interesting than what he talks about. And what he doesn't talk about is what his uh, uh, niece, Audrey Mellon Courier, did with her Mellon money, and her husband, Stephen Courier. The two had eloped when students at Harvard and Radcliffe and they founded together, one minute, the Taconic Foundation. And they were among the first philanthropists committed fully to the civil rights movement. They funded the voter registration program. The Kennedys turned to them early on in 1961 because they didn't want to ask the Southern Democrats in Congress to fund uh, the civil rights program they had in mind. So they turned to philanthropists for that. And Steve Currier was deeply troubled, as Dorothy Heiss remembers him, by philanthropists then indifference to civil rights. Uh, and he was one of the great pioneers of funding the voter registration drives and the early years of the second phase of the civil rights movement. It is, after all, only in 1966 that Mike George Bundy, five years later, who had left the Johnson White House with the escalation of the Vietnam War, who wanted a new conscience, became president of the Ford Foundation and firmed up those connections that Stephen Audrey uh, uh, Courier had begun a few years before. Tragically, the young couple died in a plane crash in 1967 over the Caribbean. No trace of them or their charter plane was ever found. They haven't made the history books either. But their short lives, the connection with, they made with the grassroots movements, uh, shed a different light on this elusive philanthropic search for the good of mankind. Now, once on the train ride, from Chicago to New York, one black Pullman worker asked another, who is on your car today? I've got Julius Rosenwald, was the answer. The generous Julius Rosenwald I've mentioned early on. At the arrival in New York, the man asked again, well, how did you make out? Only to be told, I guess Mr. Rosenwald is more for the race than for the individual. <laughs> the race and the individual. We might as well say mankind and the individual. Helping both in the same movement is the great challenge. Thank you.
how much wealth is involved in the uh, transfer from the uh, greatest generation, that sort of 1945 group, to the baby boomers. I've, I've heard estimates uh, that that amount goes into the trillions. You mean the current, the, the, the current generation from the baby boom generation to the next generation? Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. The, the figure is supposed to be enormous. It's obviously less since 2008. <laughs> uh, and, um, and of course, uh, uh, the, the fact that uh, the, the non-profit institutions or the foundations and endowments in order to keep their non-profit status have to spend at least 5% of it uh, is, is uh, oh, four and a half or whatever the figure is now, is um, uh, critical. And, but but the, the transfer is supposed to be enormous. Yes, you're correct. I don't know the figure. I'm sorry. Do you tell us in predicting the evolution of what the next natural order might be? I'm a historian. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's a good reason why you heard about the history. Um, the, um, my um, sense of it, of course, is that the on the one hand, we, we know that there should be a, a massive intergenerational transfer of wealth. On the other hand, uh, we know we're in a deep economic uncertainty. And, uh, um, uh, and so one thing that is clear to me uh, is that philanthropy survived the Great Depression with difficulty, but it did. So it seems to me that it will survive the Great Recession uh, uh, because it is embedded in the fabric of American <coughs> democracy. Uh, that's what I believe in. But the exact contours of it, I cannot tell you. I can, cannot tell you any better than you can. I have a question. I was recently working with a local community foundation, and they're very active in civic engagement. So I was wondering if, um, in the development of the laws governing advocacy and philanthropy, if you see that the law will need to evolve even further to account for that kind of active participation. I know it's not outside the realm of the current law, but I was just wondering if you saw any evolution in that direction. And the answer to this is absolutely. Actually, the Rehnquist Court has really opened up the possibilities for uh, advocacy, um, mostly in, make, in, in, in making it possible for 501 C3s to, to work closely with, with 501 C4s, with advocacy organizations. So to, to uh, explain briefly the distinction, I mean, a 501 C3 is not supposed to be engaged in political activity uh, no matter what, and, and, and donors uh, can take the tax deduction when they give to a 501 C3. Donors cannot take the tax deduction when they give to a C4, even though the C4 is tax exempt. Um, and, uh, uh, but uh, uh, Treasury, for a long time, has wanted to 
uh, keep the two organizations strictly separate. And I think the last 15 years of uh, um, uh, Supreme Court decisions has basically reversed that. There's been discussion that philanthropy is not directing their funds to organizations led by people of color. Um, I, I don't know enough about it to answer it. I'm not trying to evade the question. I just don't know. Did, did you do, did your research include any, any diversity issues oh, in Oh, enormously, enormously. It seems to me that uh, um, this doesn't, um, uh, well, there's been a great deal of resistance to funding um, various uh, minority organizations uh, throughout uh, uh, the history of philanthropy, but I think this has opened up uh, largely in the last 30 or 40 years. So if those are recent instances, no, I, I haven't found instances of that. From a historical perspective, you mentioned the Tax Act of 1913, uh, 1986. And 1936, yeah. 36. Also, I believe there was some tax changes in the 1980s that, that helped accelerate some uh, movement in, uh, in giving. And just uh, could you... Historically, and then looking forward and some of the proposals that are being uh, talked of now, what the effect has been each time there is a tax act and what you think could happen now. The 1936 act I mentioned was the one that uh, was um, making a clear distinction between philanthropy and advocacy, uh, where one couldn't use philanthropic funds for politics or for engaging in any kind of political, acti of political activity. It was actually a rather cynical outcome of uh, a fight over veterans' benefits uh, in the New Deal and uh, with veterans' organizations trying to, um, to uh, have Congress uh, take away the tax-exempt uh, uh, stat status of, of other organizations uh, trying to limit veterans' benefits. So it was one organization pitted against another. Uh, it was no lofty principle behind it. But still, it was an important decision. It was reinforced in 1969 when too many philanthropic organizations supported the civil rights movement. But there was also, a previous to the 1969 Tax Act, uh, a great deal of investigation of small family foundations that operated in great deal of secrecy, uh, didn't have annual reports, didn't uh, make uh, annual donations, um, uh, postpone, uh, engage in what was called self-dealing, all kinds of uns unsavory practices, or used uh, uh, foundation strategies to control uh, keep control of companies, which of course everybody knows that's how the Ford Foundation began, a huge tax dodge to keep control of the Ford Motor Company. Um, uh, and those two sort of fiscal and political goals combined in the 1969 Tax Act, which in the end actually did a lot of good for the field because it created a much more open field. So that's the... Uh, uh, sort of uh, including the obligation of dispersing a, a certain amount of the capital and all of this. And then the 1980s uh, changes came not from the tax acts, but from basically from the courts. 
Thank you so much for explaining what uh, made philanthropy in the United States uh, historically so unique. Uh, I'd be curious to hear from you how that compares to countries, let's say, like France and Germany. Uh, there is uh, a basic effort in the French government to uh, uh, change the tax rules in order to create in incentive to give. Uh, to companies, to run museums this way, to... The, the whole idea behind it is that the welfare state is broken, one needs to substitute for it, which seems to me, by the way, is the wrong idea. Because philanthropy and the state do not operate on the same level. Um, and moreover, um, in addition to subsidizing uh, the non-profit sector through the tax exemption, the federal government is, since the mid-1970s, uh, uh, giving half of its, funding half of its, of, of its budget, of the non-profit sector budget through various grants. So if you look at the non-profit sector budget in this country, uh, you will basically have four sources of income. You have the uh, annual grants. Uh, I mean, you have the annual donations, I mean, from various people. You have uh, return on investment, which of course can be huge. You have um, uh, uh, fees for s services that are connected to the nonprofit function, and then the government grants. And the government grants are equal to the private grants. So, so this idea that floats around in Europe that we need a private sector to replace the public one, uh, when in effect here we have a mixed political economy of, uh, of giving. Uh, it uh, seems to me wrong. Moreover, even though the non-profit budget in this country is equivalent to that of the Pentagon, it's not equivalent to that of the state. So it's huge, but it's not on the same scale. So I think this, this is something of a myth that is going on in Europe. On the other hand, uh, I think what's missing in the European situation, as I see it, is this uh, habit of giving in American mass philanthropy that I traced in my talk back to 1907 with the first uh, sort of uh, uh, public health campaign, but really got into the American psyche during the First World War when philanthropy, when giving became for helping the troops and, uh, and, and funding the humanitarian movement during the war, during the First World War, became a matter of national duty. And remained so uh, 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 when the war was over. And I think that's a, that's a major turning point of it. Since uh, historically, I think wealthy people want to retain their wealth and maybe give it to their progeny, um, where did the estate tax come from in the United States? How was that implemented? And also, what do you think of the current propaganda to re rename the estate tax the, dex the death tax so that it, so that's a private money does not become money uh, to, that can be uh, used for ta taxed and used for public purposes? The uh, origins of the estate tax uh, I, and the various origins in the various... Uh, States, I mean, all of the federal taxes first originated in state taxes and then moved over. I, I don't know the exact history of the estate tax. Um, 
I think that um, uh, the estate tax uh, was at times extremely high. Like, for example, when I mentioned that um, the Ford Foundation began as a tax dodge, it was to avoid the New Deal estate tax, which I think had gone to 36 or 38 percent in the New Deal. I, I would have to verify, but it's in that uh, range for fortunes above so many millions. So clearly, the uh, uh, Henry Ford then thought that uh, his heirs would have to uh, sell the to sell the company to pay the tax, and that's when they transferred 90% of the stock to a foundation. Um, and this practice had kept going and going and going. Now, um, I do think that uh, we ought to have an estate tax, and I do f agree with you that uh, calling it a death tax is, is wrong. Uh, the, but I, I don't know, uh, but I, I couldn't, I haven't thought through, neither am I in a, uh, able to think through what the exact amount should be under what circumstances and so on, because that's just not something I know. <laughs>